Good morning, church family. Our scripture reading begins in Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. 
You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And I'm so thankful we get to worship together today and dive into this text. And I'm also thankful that that we read scripture like we do here. I, I don't know about you. I know some of these passages can be longer uh, but it's it's cool for a couple reasons. One, by the end of this year, we'll have read all the Gospel of Matthew in our services together, which is pretty neat to think about. But second, if we're going to give time and attention and place to anything when we gather, we want it to be the Word of God. Like this is where truth is. This is where the power is. This is where the Spirit speaks through us. And so uh, I'm thankful that we take the time to read these texts together uh, that we get to dive into this morning as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and one of the things uh, that has kind of helped me get my mind around this text has actually been something that I've been able to, to do with my family this year. We got season passes to Dollywood for Christmas. Uh, and so this season, this spring, we've gotten to take the kids to Dollywood and let them experience East Tennessee at its very best uh, again and again, which has been a lot of fun. Uh, and especially with my kids, because for them, like, this is the first time that they're going through, like, the roller coaster kind of thing. And it's so neat to get ex- to experience it with them for the first time. And uh, we went uh, for the first time, I guess, back in March. And so we were going through some of these rides. And, again, just to see the look on their face, they're looking at the ride, trying to determine whether or not they're going to do it. Uh, and one of the rides that we did was kind of the, the boat ride, you know, that goes back and forth, the pendulum kind of thing uh, in the kids section and Camden uh, my third born was on that ride and Camden's awesome and again from the ground it doesn't look that bad but once you get on it and you start going up and down and up and down it, it gets a little it can get a little intense for a little guy I've never seen anyone respond the way Camden did instead of just like closing his eyes or screaming or looking away he kind of goes into the incredible Hulk move like flexes both arms just like, I'm going to scare the ride more than it can scare me, just going after it. It's amazing. Uh, and I was actually on the ground watching this whole thing take place. You can ask Pastor Daniel. He was there besides Cam as he was hulking out on the ride. Uh, it was a cool thing. But as we were going from ride to ride, uh, one of the things that I, I've tried to encourage in, in my kids is that there's something greater. There, there are better rides in the park than the pirate ship ride. Uh, but once we get to the wild eagle and they're looking at this thing from the ground looking up or the lightning rod or whatever you've been to Dollywood, they aren't convinced that that's better or that's greater. Like when they see people flipping upside down and going, you know, like lots of miles an hour, like that doesn't look better. So I'm on the ground saying, no, this is so much better. This is so much more fun. They're looking at this and saying, that actually doesn't look fun. That looks terrifying doesn't look better, it, it looks worse. And so we're wrestling through those tensions. And I think that helps set up our, our text this morning. We've been going through Matthew 11 the last two weeks and talking about how people were responding to Jesus and, and our responses to Jesus. And one of the things that Matthew is bringing out throughout his gospel, especially in these sections, 
is the way people respond to Jesus, but, but even more so the way people see Jesus. And what we see in the text is that when people see Jesus, they are unsure whether or not he is true and better, whether he is greater than all the other religious system, all the other people around him. And we see that, we saw that in Matthew 11. John the Baptist, who came proclaiming Jesus and said, I'm unworthy to just tie a sandal, and he's the one to come. Now he's doubting and questioning, Jesus, are you really the one who's greater? Are you really the one who's better? The, the cities where Jesus preached and performed his miracles, their, their responses are indifference. Just ignore him. Some are opposition. Some are just rejection. And Jesus condemns them because they've just rejected. They don't see him as true and better. They don't see him as greater. They just see him as somebody else. And they ignore the message. And as we come into Matthew 12, Matthew begins to shift the gaze, not from cities or John or the people around, but specifically to the response of the Pharisees to Jesus. And it becomes very apparent that they're not very impressed with Jesus either. But they begin taking it to another level. See, the religious leaders, they were the ones looking for the Savior. They were the ones looking for the Messiah. But they don't see Jesus' ministry as something greater. Instead, they see Jesus' ministry as a threat. They're not just doubters. They're not just indifferent. They're not even just rejecting his message. But what we just read shows us that, in fact, they want to not just reject Jesus, but because of his message, they want to destroy him. He is a threat to their way of life. He is a threat to what they see God's kingdom to be. And in all the miracles and all the preaching, all the teaching, they can't see the truth that Jesus clearly proclaims to them and clearly proclaims to us this morning, which is our big truth for today, which is this, something greater is here. Something greater is here. And it couldn't be more plain. Like Jesus has kind of spoken a mystery. We talked about last week how things were, were hidden from the wise and they were revealed to the weak. But in this passage, we see that Jesus just comes straight out and says, hey, what you're looking for and what you're looking to Something greater than those things are here. Something greater than just the law. Something greater than the laws that you've created. Something greater than the religious system is here. Let me give you a few examples. Matthew 12, 6. Jesus says this. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Matthew 12, 41. The men of Nineveh one day will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah... And listen to what Jesus says. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is making it clear. Let's look at one more. Matthew 12, 42. The queen of the south will rise up at judgment, the queen of Sheba, with this generation and condemnment. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, quoting from 1 Kings. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus wants his audience to know, his hearers to know, the Pharisees to know, and this morning for us to know that something greater is here. That he is something greater, that he is the true and better, which leads us to ask two questions this morning that I want us to wrestle through in our time together from this text. And the first question is this, how is Jesus something greater? How 
is Jesus something greater? And let me just give you a few big ideas from this passage that I hope will just open your heart and your mind to see the goodness of our Savior this morning. How is Jesus something greater? First answer is this. Jesus is the true and better Sabbath. How is Jesus greater? How is he greater than the religious system? How is he greater than what people have seen and known? How is he greater than anything in our lives? Jesus is the true and better Sabbath. And we see this in Matthew 12, 1 through 14. Let me just highlight some of the verses here. So just so we understand the context, in verse 2, there is an accusation that the Pharisees launch at Jesus and his disciples. They say this, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath to do. So there were rules, there were laws on the Sabbath day about what you could do and what you couldn't do. That from the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, God set the Sabbath aside. If you remember the creation account, days 1 through 6, God is creating the world. He's bringing out of nothing something. But then on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, God rested, not because he was tired, but he rested to rejoice in his good work, in his good creation. And I think what's, what's really cool about that idea is that Adam and Eve, they were created day six. What's the very first day of creation they experienced? Not work, but rest. Rejoicing in God, resting in Him. That's the very first thing that they experienced in human history. And from Genesis on, God called His people to set the Sabbath day aside. Not as a day to work, a day to strive, a day to build, but a day to rest and rejoice in Him. To remember that their hope isn't found in what they do. Their hope and their identity is not found in their occupation and their job, but in God alone. And so that's why in Exodus 20, in, in the Ten Commandments, Jesus says, honor the Sabbath day. Keep the Sabbath day. Honor it as holy. Why? Because God is holy. And God desires our worship. And so the Pharisees had taken that, that principle and that law and then they had added a heavy burden to it. They came up with all these different laws of all the things you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. The things that qualified as work and unqualified as work. And they basically had, had made the system to where unless you were trying to save someone's life, you couldn't work or do any kind of labor on the Sabbath. And so when the disciples are walking through the grain fields and they're hungry and they just start picking off pieces of grain... And by the Pharisees' definition, that's work, that's labor. You're breaking the Sabbath. You're dishonoring the Sabbath. And what we'll see a few verses on in verse 10, in another instance on the Sabbath, when there's a man who needs his arm healed, who's been withered in, uh, in his arm, they ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why? says, and here's the intent, so they might accuse him. So why are the Pharisees upset? They're upset because they want to find a way to show that Jesus really isn't the Messiah, that he really isn't the true and better. And that the Sabbath is being broken by Jesus. They've turned uh, legalism and earning, they've turned the Sabbath into those things. So if you want to honor God, if you want to earn his favor, if you want to earn his love, you've got to keep all of these rules and you can't break these commandments. And so Jesus responds to them. And his response is what I want us to hear and lean into this morning. He does two things. First, he exposes their hypocrisy. 
We'll see in the account with the man with the withered hand that Jesus begins to talk about a lamb. And he says, hey, any of you who have a sheep who fall in a pit on the Sabbath, are you going to let it stay in the pit and die? Well, no, you're going to go rescue your lamb out of the pit. He says, how much more important is a human being than a sheep? You've lost sight of the truth. You've lost sight of the meaning of the Sabbath. You're oppressing people and taking care of yourself. That's not why God gave you the Sabbath. So Jesus exposes their hypocrisy, which we could just dive into the depths of that, but that's not what I'm going to focus on this morning. I'm going to focus on the second thing that Jesus does. Jesus, in his response to the religious leaders, positions himself as the one who has authority over the Sabbath. So the disciples are picking up grain. The Pharisees lodge this accusation. And notice what Jesus says in verse 3. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? So he gives an example of David. He doesn't defend his disciples. He doesn't justify what they're doing. He gives an example of King David. Then he gives another example. Or have you not read in the law on how the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, and are guiltless. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. What's Jesus saying? What's Jesus doing? What does this mean? Jesus is saying, he's basically saying this. Why is it that King David can go into the temple on the Sabbath and eat the bread that he's not allowed to eat and not be condemned? Why? Because he's David. He's the chosen one. He's the Messiah. Or he's the anointed one, not the Messiah. He's the one who's been appointed by God to be king. So why can David break the law? Well, because he's David. Then he gives another example. Why can the priests break the law? They eat the bread on the Sabbath day. They labor on the Sabbath day for the Lord. Why can they do that? Because they're the priests. What's Jesus saying? Why can Jesus break the law on the Sabbath? Because he's Jesus. Because he's greater than David. Because he's greater than the priests. Because he is, and he will say these very words, verse 8, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It exists for him. Something greater is here. And in this moment, Jesus is, is showing us something that Sabbath rests, resting in God, hoping in God, ceasing from our striving, ceasing from our work. It's not going to be attained by our own effort or doing. It's only attained through Jesus. That Jesus is the true and better Sabbath rest. The Sabbath was not given by God as a legalistic requirement to earn his favor. The Sabbath was not given by God so we could just have a day to relax because we're tired after a long week of work. No, the Sabbath was given by God so that we would stop our working, stop our earning, stop our striving, and rest in him. The bad news is, on our own, we never do that. We always work. We always labor. But the good news is, God has made a way for Jesus to become our rest. And this is why just a few verses earlier, in the same section, Jesus can say these words, Matthew eleven twenty eight: 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why? Because Jesus is the true Sabbath. He is the one that our soul finds rest in. He is the only one that we can stop working and find our hope and security in. Jesus is the true and better Sabbath. 
And so when we think about the Sabbath and the Lord's day, it's not about the day, it's about the God of the day. That's the one we worship, that's the one we praise. And looking forward, Sabbath rest isn't just about today, but about one day when Jesus will come again. That there's a rest that is coming for God's people at the end of all things. This is what the author of Hebrew talks about when he says, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What's he saying? Jesus is our rest. We stop working, we stop laboring, we stop trying to earn our own way to God. We rest in the finished work of Christ. Jesus is the true and better Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. But not only is he the true and better Sabbath, we see in this passage that Jesus, secondly, is the true and better temple. He's the true and better temple. Look at verse 7. And if you know what this means, I'm sorry, verse 6. It says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. What's Jesus talking about? Well, Jesus is not only positioning himself in the Old Testament understanding of Sabbath, rest, and the fulfillment of that, but now he's positioning himself as the true and better temple. Why does that matter? Why is the temple important? For all kinds of reasons. But let me give you three very quickly. The first one is this. The temple is significant because of God's presence. The temple was the place where God's presence dwelt. And the holiness of holies is where God was with his people. And so the temple represented God's presence among his people. But God was separate from his people. Only the priest could enter in on certain days after certain purifications and sacrifices. So God was in the midst of his people, but he was separate from his people. And so the temple represented God's presence. Secondly, the temple represented payment. Payment for sin, sacrifice, that the animals who would be sacrificed, their blood would be shed for the sins of the people. But the third thing the temple represents is the priest. And the priest was meant to be a mediator, to stand between man and God and to offer right sacrifices on behalf of man to God so that man could be cleansed for their sins. So when Jesus says that he is the true and better temple, that something greater than the temple is here, Jesus is saying that I fulfill all of those things. Jesus clearly shows us and demonstrates that he is simultaneously God's presence, the priest, and the payment, all in a person. And we see this most clearly in Hebrews 8 through 10. I would encourage you just to read those chapters on your own, but let me just read from chapter 9. It says this, But when Christ appeared as the high priest of good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, talking about his body, not made with hands, not of his creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus is the true and better temple. He is greater than the temple. He's greater than the Sabbath. He's greater than the temple. He is the means by which we can be made right with God, that we can be in God's presence again. Jesus is the true and better temple. Let's keep going. He's not just the true and better Sabbath. He's not just the true and better temple. We see thirdly that Jesus is the true and better servant. He's the true and better servant. In verses 
15 through 21, it talks about Jesus being the fulfillment of this promise that was given by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 42. It says, Behold my servant, verse 18, the promised one. This is the longest Old Testament quote in the book of Matthew. It's significant because this servant song, and there's five of them in Isaiah. Isaiah 53 is probably the one that most of us would know the best are looking forward to a servant that would come on behalf of God for his people. And as we read through this passage, we see some very important things about this promised servant. He's the one who the Father delights in. Look at verse 18. The one I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. That should sound familiar to us, right? Those are the same words that were said over Jesus at his baptism. That this servant is the one that God the Father delights in. But not only that, he is the one who's filled with the Spirit. He says, I will put my Spirit upon him. He's the one who proclaims truth and justice. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He does not quarrel or cry aloud. No one will hear his voice in the street. What's that mean? It means Jesus doesn't come to win a popularity contest. He's not shouting in the streets trying to convince people to come follow him. He's not arguing with the religious leaders to show who he is. He's choosing a path of humility and service. He's not come to make a big deal about himself. He's come to be a servant on behalf of sinful people. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. What does that mean? It's a picture. The one who's weak, the one who's helpless, the one who's about to be broken in half, the one whose flame is about to be extinguished, the ones who are weak in this world, who are broken, who are weary, who are heavy laden, he will not crush them. Why? Because he's gentle and he's lowly and he loves them. Friends, if you're here this morning, you're weary, you're weak, you're wounded, you're burdened, you feel broken inside. Jesus has not come to crush you. He's come to meet you there this morning. He's come to the weary, the weak, the wounded, those who are utterly hopeless. And he's come to the Gentiles. It says that he will bring justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Who are the Gentiles? Those are those who are outside of the family of God. Those who are far away. Those who have no access to the people of God. Who have no access to God the Father. That's the one who the servant son has come to save. The one who's come to bring them into the family of God, to adopt them in. But here's what I want you to see. How will he accomplish this? Not by power, not by might, not by authority, not by army, not by conquering Rome, not by turning the religious system on its head. How will he do this? How will he serve the weak, despised, and weary? By becoming the weak, despised, and weary. He's the promised servant. Why? Because he comes not to be served, but to serve. Friends, he's come to serve you. In your brokenness, in your weariness, in your sin, in your need, he has come to serve you. The Savior of the world has come to serve us. Jesus can serve the burden. He can serve the weak and the heavy laden. Why? Because he's gentle and lowly, as we read last week. He is a servant. Which is why the author of Philippians, the Apostle Paul, 
celebrates Jesus. And this is what he says. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he was God himself. He did not account equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Not just to serve others, but friends, to serve you. To serve me and our unworthiness and our sins. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Listen to this. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even the death of the cross. Jesus is the true and better servant. He lays down his life to save those who are unworthy. Who are broken, who are weary, who are outside the family of God. Oh, what a savior. But he's not just the true and better Sabbath. He's not just the true and better temple. He's not just the true and better servant. But fourthly, he is the true and better king. He is the true and better king. And in verses 23 through 28, we see this. Jesus heals a demon-possessed man who's blind and mute. And look at the people's response in verse 23. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Why would they say that? Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to David that a son would come through his family, a son would come through his line, who would sit on an everlasting throne, who would be an eternal king. So from century to century to century, God's people were looking for this son of David who would come. And now they see one who has power over the demons himself, and the people are in amazement and wonder, could this be the son of David? Well, the religious leaders are really quick to try to counter that. So they say, no, that's not the son of David. The reason why he can cast out demons is because he's in league with them. He's working with Beelzebul or Satan. He's on Satan's team, so that's how he can cast out demons. And Jesus responds to them and says, that's ridiculous. That makes no sense. If a house is divided against itself, if it's fighting itself, how can it stand? Why would Satan want to destroy himself? That doesn't make any sense at all. And I love what he says in verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What's Jesus saying? God's kingdom and God's king are here. They're here. He's not just the suffering servant, but he is the true and better king. And if you keep reading through this text, he says, How can someone enter a strong man's house or plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Friends, I want you to hear this this morning. This is what Jesus is saying. Who's the strong man? It's Satan. Who is Jesus? The one who's bound the strong man. Jesus is victor over our enemy. It's not just he's in a battle. He has won the battle. He is the conquering king. The servant is the one who's come and who has shut down the enemy from your life and from this world. He is the one who rules and reigns. He is the one who's worthy. And that's why Paul will go on to say in Philippians chapter 2 from the section we were just reading, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's not just the suffering servant who humbles himself. He's not just the true and better Sabbath we find rest in. He's not just the temple where he's the sacrifice and the priest in God's presence. He is the king. 
And he is ruling and reigning now. Something greater is here. Which leads to a second question for us this morning. The question is this, how do we respond? How should we respond to Jesus, who's the true and better? To Jesus, who is something greater? How do we respond to him? Let me give you three points of application very quickly. The first one is this. We respond to Jesus with right worship. We respond to Jesus with right worship. Verses 1 through 14 are a conversation about worship. The Pharisees had centered worship around the day around temple, around rules, around law-keeping, around earning, around legalism. Friends, Jesus doesn't want our practice. He wants our heart. Look at what he says in Matthew 12, verse 7. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus wants your worship. Jesus wants your heart, and that worship happens in all of life. Worship is something that God has created not just for a moment, not just a day. It's not dependent upon time or location, but worship is meant to be our response to God in all of life. That's why in 1 Corinthians 10 31, the Apostle Paul says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, in everything that you do, give glory to God. That all of life is meant to be a life of praise. God is not looking, friends, this morning for your religion. God is not looking for your practice. God is not looking for you to be good enough or try hard enough or show up enough or be moral enough. God wants your heart. He wants your worship. He wants your adoration. He wants all of you. Worship is not about earning. Worship is about the heart. This is why Jesus will say the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. We respond to Jesus with right worship, giving him our life. Secondly, we respond to Jesus with faith. With faith. Matthew 12, 32, Jesus says this, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks a word against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this life or in the age to come. That, that verse should startle us. It should grab us. What is Jesus talking about? You can speak against the Son, but you can't speak against the Holy Spirit. If you speak against the Holy Spirit, you will be condemned forever. What is this sin that Jesus is talking about? Or Some of us have been raised to hear uh, this phrase called the unpardonable sin. It comes from this passage. What's, what's Jesus talking about? And the unpardonable sin that Jesus is talking about is the sin of unbelief. It's rejection of the Holy Spirit. A rejection of the gospel. See, the Holy Spirit is the one who produces faith in us. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the ability to respond in faith. And so when we hear the good news that Jesus is greater, that he is the king, that he is the temple, that he is everything we are created for, our response is to trust him. To lean into him. To give our lives to him. Which leads to a third response. We respond to Jesus with obedience. With obedience. Jesus says, either make the tree good and the fruit good. Or make the tree bad and the fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Meaning, your life, 
your words and the way you live your life will be evidence to who has your heart. The way you speak and the way you act say who you belong to. Faith always leads to obedience. Obedience is always tied to faith. They're two sides of the same coin. So we obey God out of worship, out of faith, out of love for him. And a life that's not lived in obedience is not a life that belongs to Jesus. Friends, I just ask you this morning, is Jesus your true and greatest? Is he the one that you're hoping in? Is he the one that you're worshiping? Is he the one that you're obeying? Or is it someone or something else? Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, we thank you that Jesus is better, that he is the true and better, that he is worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise and worthy of our lives. And so this morning we come to give you the worship that you are worthy of. We thank you that you've made a way to come and rescue us, that you are the servant who meets us in our brokenness, but you are the king who binds the enemy, that you are the temple who makes the right payment between God and us when we cannot make that payment, and you are the one our soul rests in. Lord, I just pray for my friends this morning that they would find their rest in you, that they would find their hope in you. Help us not to harden our hearts like the religious leaders, but help us to turn to you.